This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Merkel Media. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long, bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave, and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. Well, the giant moves. He's got a spear in one hand, and he's running really fast. And spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody yells, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge, and I blow this head off. I feel something pulling at my leg. And I look over, and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reached my hand into this bush, and I touch air. Couldn't breathe, and I couldn't move, because I know I'm seeing a monster. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I'm your host, Tony Merkel. Thanks for being here. If you have a crazy, wild experience you want to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. That's theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the contact section. You can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me. Just get a hold of me. If you want to hear more shows on a weekly basis, go to theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the join button and become a member because members get access to Thursday bonus shows every Thursday on the website and the Castos app, plus overtime segments like last week. If that interests you, go to theconfessionalspodcast.com, hit the join button and become a member today. Also, go ahead and check out preparewiththeconfessionals.com. That's preparewiththeconfessionals.com. There you can get yourself emergency supply food, survival gear, things for emergencies. These are things that we don't want to plan on because you never know when it's going to happen and if it happens. But when it does happen, you're really glad you prepared. And that's where you're going to do it. Preparewiththeconfessionals.com. All right. Today, we got Laura Sanger coming on the show today. And Laura wrote the book, The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from NOAA to the U.S. Dollar. I first heard of Laura Sanger on the Tinfoil Hat podcast with Sam Tripley. He's a good friend of mine. And when I saw she was on that show, I reached out and said, hey, you were on my friend's show, Sam Tripley. I might as well have you on my show too. Let's talk about Nephilim. And she said, absolutely. So she comes on today to talk about her research when it comes to Nephilim and her unique perspectives on the topic. So let's get to Dr. Laura Sanger right now. All right, today we got Dr. Laura Sanger on the show. How are you? 
I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So uh, I, a, a months ago now, I heard you on my good friend's podcast, Sam Tripoli, Tinfoil Hat. And uh, he and I connected years ago uh, when he, he, it was funny because he said to me, he wants to do more, or he didn't say it to me. He said it on the show. He wanted to do more paranormal conversation. And I said to myself, well, I was driving a tractor trailer at the time. I was like, well, that fits me. And so I reached out to him. He had me on the show and we become good friends. And when I saw you were on the show and what you were talking about, I was like, well, I think this would be a great guest. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> since then, it turns out you and I are both going to be at BlurryCon, which is going to be uh, hosted by the Blurry Creatures podcast, uh, both as uh, speakers and contributors. Uh, but before we get into today's conversation, which is going to be awesome, uh, could you let people know a little bit about yourself, uh, your background and where you're coming from? Absolutely. So uh, my profession, I'm a psychologist. So I went uh, to Fuller Theological Seminary and got a PhD in clinical psychology and then also a master's in theology. And I practiced for a while, um, but retired from clinical work in 2013. Uh, but I still keep my license active, you know, do continuing education. And throughout my career, I specialized in chronic mental illness, personality disorders, addictions, and adolescent treatment. So um, I also am, I'm just one of those people who absolutely loves to learn. So I'm constantly formulating questions in my head. You know, I got to research this and research that. And it actually, um, I've been involved in research since 1989, when I began at the VA Medical Center in La Jolla, California, I was at UC San Diego at the time, and I was doing full-time work in the Department of Psychiatry doing research, and I was hooked from that point forward. And so I've been involved, like I said, in some level of research ever since then, and I brought that skill set along with an expertise in spiritual mapping to offer this unique perspective on a book that I wrote called The Roots of the Federal Reserve. Um, and I'd have to say, you know, writing that book was a super unique pro process for me because I never intended to write a book about the Federal Reserve. I mean, I'm a psychologist after all. What, you know, what would I be doing writing a book on the Federal Reserve? But it really began for me in 2014 when I just kept feeling this nudge from the Lord to write a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve. Now, are you familiar at all with what spiritual mapping is? No. And I saw that in the email. I wanted to ask you because I have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a niche within um, you know Christianity and spiritual warfare that many people don't understand. So what spiritual mapping is, it involves uh, you know looking, gathering information on the spiritual, the social, and the physical pulse of a society or a people group, you know, a, an institution, a city, a state, whatever it is, the focus of that mapping assignment is. And what we do is we dig through history to uncover ancient roots of defilement. So there's three components to spiritual mapping. There's reconnaissance, there's research, and then there's informed intercession. So with reconnaissance, what we're doing is we're gathering a team of people who have gifts of discernment, for example. So these are people that can see into the spiritual realm, that can feel like what's coming off the land itself. And also who, you know, are skilled in hearing the voice of the Lord. So we'll go onto the land itself and just ask the Lord to show us what's happened here. And we take notes and then we pair that with the research component. And that involves, you know, digging through historical documents. We'll obtain demographic data. We'll even interview local people to kind of get their perspective of what's happened. And then 
we find that looking through old newspaper articles can be incredibly insightful. So then we take all that information, we pull it together and write up a prayer brief that has these targeted prayer strategies. And that's what informs intercession. Because really what we want to do is we want to help equip those people that are praying for the land and for the people to be able to strike at the root of the issues. And what we've discovered over time is that there's four types of iniquity that can create a stronghold on the land. Iniquity is a pattern of sin. And so what we're looking for is, has has there been sexual perversion, idolatry, broken covenants, or bloodshed? And if there has, if those have been patterns of sin on the land, then most likely a stronghold has been established over a territory. And that negatively affects people, whether they know it or not. And so what we want to do is we want to equip people to be able to go on the land and pray and break off curses, uproot wicked structures that have been established. We want to tear down strongholds. All of that is in prayer. And then we want to release you know, the, the full measure of blessing that God has intended for that land and that people. Because ultimately, we want people to come into a greater awareness and the fullness of what God has called them to be or created them to be. So that's spiritual mapping in a nutshell. So what happened for me is in 2014, like I said, I just kept feeling the Lord nudge me to write a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve. So that's what I did. And I gathered some intercessors and we prayed through those targeted prayer strategies. Um, And I really thought my assignment was done. You know, I thought, okay, time to move on. But the Lord just kept nudging me that He wanted me to pick it back up. And so finally, um, after about a year and a half of Him nudging me in 2016, I picked it back up and uh, began researching and writing. But I really didn't know what I was writing because for the first you know, that first little while, it was becoming way too big for a spiritual mapping prayer brief. You know, those are five to 10 pages. So for the first year, I'm like, what am I writing, Lord? And finally, in 2017, he clued me in that he wanted me to write this book. And so I spent four years researching and writing The Roots of the Federal Reserve. And I wrote it in what I call real time, which means, you know, in chapter five, I remember distinctly, I'm writing this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters. and. I had no idea how this book was even going to come together. I didn't understand the twists and turns that the investigative journey would take. And so it really was just this act of obedience. And my constant prayer was Jeremiah 33, 3, which says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. And that definitely happened for me because, you know, the research I do in this book, it spans from the dawn of humanity to our current day. And I identify, you know, this Nephilim agenda that's defiled our monetary system, but practically every institution in our land. And so I trace this agenda from the days of Noah to our current day, and particularly our debt enslavement system we call the Federal Reserve. And I'm so grateful to come on shows like this because I know one of the things that I'm called to do since the book was published is to awaken people to the impact the Nephilim agenda has on us today. You know, it's one of those things where uh, when you read the title, The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the U.S. Dollar, that's a a loaded title. And it's just, one could say, what does the Federal Reserve have to do with Nephilim? (laughs) <laughs> and and so enter Dr. Laura Sanger and she gives it all to us in the book. 
uh, it's very fascinating the the um, the path that God has led you on to get to this point. And uh, it, it's only possible for people for this to happen to somebody who is literally in the moment, step by step, trying, not always being perfect, but trying to be obedient to what God is calling them to do. And uh, that that's a level of uh, of humility, understanding, and acceptance of not knowing you're not going to do it right to get to that point. Um, and I find myself in a similar situation, even with this show. Like, I used to really beat myself up a lot and, and think I'm just not doing it the way I'm supposed to be doing it. And, uh, and then, you know, the idea that, Hey, God's grace is sufficient for me and all my flaws. And then I, I just, uh, I kind of breathe heavy. I take a sit, sit back and I'm like, okay, I'm not doing it perfect, but it's okay. Cause God's got me. Anything that I mess up, he's going to fix. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's, right. It's fantastic that, cause I mean, it literally is that, that kind of attitude of just, I don't know where we're going, but I'm just going to follow the, the leading of the Holy spirit and just, and roll with it. Uh, so yeah. So with this whole topic of conversation, then uh, we have some talking points here that I, I definitely want to hit on uh, because I think it's going to kind of lay out the whole um, the, the whole the whole thing that we're talking about here. Um, I appreciate you talking about spiritual mapping. That's very interesting, uh, and I think that's probably the first time I had somebody lay out spiritual mapping on the show. Uh, but with that said, uh, big question: What is the Nephilim agenda? <laughs> yeah, big question, right? <laughs> so the Nephilim agenda, as I define it, is essentially it was unleashed during the days of Noah. So it's the plan to defile the human genome through the propagation of a hybrid race. And the purpose of that is to overthrow God's kingdom. So the origins of this Nephilim agenda actually go back to the seed war of Genesis 3. And I'll read verse 14 and 15. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we have here is after the fall, Yahweh declared war between the seed of Eve, which is humanity, and the seed of Satan. And one day Eve's seed would crush Satan. Now, this was a prophetic declaration of the coming Messiah. So Satan's strategy then was to contaminate the seed of the woman by altering the genetic code of humans. This is where the fallen sons of God become integral in Satan's strategy. And we read about that not only in Genesis 6, but also in the extra biblical text of the book of Enoch. So the fallen sons of God, you know, they chose to leave their heavenly abode and they invaded the earth realm by descending upon Mount Hermon. And from there, they lusted after the daughters of men. They took them as wives, they mated with them, and then they defiled the human genome. And these hybrid race of giants were birthed, known as the Nephilim. So in my book, I knew that it was important. One of the things that God was really pressing upon me was to identify a set of proposed criteria because, you know, the, the Nephilim kind of have this ethereal nature. And so by identifying this proposed criteria, um, it would help advance our ability to discern Nephilim traits within an individual. And so what I did in chapter 13 of my book is I identify four physical traits and 19 behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim and their giant offspring. And it's really because we we must not be deceived in thinking that the Nephilim only roamed the earth during the days of antiquity. You know, I propose that there are Nephilim and Nephilim hosts alive today. 
Now, Nephilim host is a term that I coined in my book, and it represents a human that has partnered with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out the Nephilim agenda. And these would be, you know, people that would meet that criteria that I set out in chapter 13. And I think many of them are the titans of global governance. You know, these are the global elites over media and banking, industry, academia, big pharma, you know, the political establishment. And when you think about it, this Nephilim agenda and the globalist agenda are serving the same end goal. And that is the total domination of humanity. It's, when you think about it, it's really tyranny on the grandest scale. So one of the things that I try and make people aware of is that, you know, Nephilim hosts, they are intent on destroying the followers of Jesus while enslaving the masses. You know, they use control, domination, and intimidation to control the masses. And at the core of the Nephilim agenda is this goal to strip us of our humanity because they hate the fact that we are created in the image of God. So they wanted to defile our genome, our human genome. So that's kind of the Nephilim agenda in a nutshell. And one of the things that I found in my investigation is that the Nephilim actually leave a bit of a calling card. And that was helpful for me to trace this Nephilim agenda all throughout history. What was the calling card? I, uh, I, that's a, that's like a cliffhanger. What, <laughs> uh, unless, unless, uh, that, that's a loaded question. I'm not sure. Well, it's, um, in a nutshell, it's the color red, but I do, I, I want to unpack it a little bit because it's, it will really help, uh, connect the dots from the days of Noah and ancient biblical history to the here and now. And it's, it's really, um, I should say this, like one of the things that I love to do is I love treasure hunts. Um, my husband and I were in youth ministry for 25 years and we always, you know, did these creative treasure hunts. In fact, my son is having a birthday and we're going to do a car rally and all the clues are like encoded and they have to find things all throughout the city. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit did with me in writing this book and doing all this research is he would just lay out clue after clue. And like you said, I would just say, okay, Lord, what, what do you have for me today? And so when I began putting the pieces together of what he was showing me, that's when I understood, okay, there really are throughout history, two symbols that are a consistent thread connecting the Nephilim and their agenda. And that is the color red and the circumpunct. Now the circumpunct is the circle with the dot, but I want to focus on the color red because this will tie some pieces together for us today. So, you know, in thinking about the color red, it's indelibly linked to the Edomites. In fact, the first mention of the Hebrew word red in scripture, which is Adamoni, is in reference to Esau's birth. So it, it means uh, reddish of the hair or complexion. And it turns out that Esau is very important in the storyline of the Nephilim agenda. You know, there's this transformation that took place between when Esau became Edom. Now, the Hebrew word for Edom is Adam, and it means to be red. So naturally, I'm like, hey, what the heck does it mean to be red? Yeah. And so I just began digging and I started just looking at the biblical meaning for the color red in scripture. And there's two, two types of meanings. There's the redemptive purpose and then there's the defiled purpose. 
The redemptive purpose, you know, is represented by the blood of the Passover lamb and by the blood of Jesus. But there's numerous connections of this defiled purpose of the color red aligning with the seed of Satan. And we see this in Isaiah chapter one, you know, red represents sin and the blood of evil deeds. And then in Revelation six, it represents chaos, death, and destruction. It even represents Satan himself in Revelation 12. And then in Revelation 17, red represents the beast, mystery, Babylon, and martyrdom. And so here we have, you know, Esau chose to be red. And this choice had substantial ramifications upon his bloodline. So Esau branded himself red or Edom when he willingly traded his birthright for red lentil stew. And I want to read this passage. It's from Genesis 25. This is verse 29 and 30. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Now, something actually much deeper than Esau's desire to have red lentil stew was at work here. So what Esau did is he actually sealed a transaction, one that would constrict his allegiance to a particular seed. And so what he did in essence is he aligned himself with red, the seed of Satan, when he willingly traded his birthright for that red lentil stew. So he he gave up that birthright of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And on that fateful day, what he did is he actually rejected Yahweh, the God of his fathers. So once I discovered that, I knew it was important to kind of develop a bit of a, a personality sketch or a character sketch of who, who was Esau? What was he like? And again, I, I always typically start in scripture. So Genesis 25, 27 gives us some clues. You know, it says that he's a cunning hunter, a man of the field. Well, one of the things I like to do in my book is perform what I, I call an archaeological dig on language. And so I, I like to look at the etymology of words because when we read the words in English, you know, they have a particular meaning. It's not until we dig into the original language that the depth of meaning is unpacked for us. And this is where a lot of these clues started coming together. So when you look at the Hebrew word for hunter, as an example, it's Said, and it means uh, prey taken in hunting. And it comes from the root word sued, which means to lie in wait, to chase, and to take provision. So now we're kind of beginning to see this character sketch. You know, Esau was this rugged outdoorsman. You know, he probably was really skilled at hunting, enjoyed the thrill of stalking his prey, you know, and then moving in for the kill. But one of the things that was very interesting is there's also a figurative meaning of the, the root word sued, and it means someone who lies in wait to catch a human. In other words, to entrap someone with the intent to exploit them for personal gain. And this will actually become important as we move forward in what I described. So then, you know, I wanted to look at, okay, what more can I learn about Esau? And in extra biblical manuscripts, such as the book of Jasher, there's actually a lot of details about not only his personality, but about the events that led up to the trading of this birthright. And so I'll read Jasher 27. Uh, portions of it. It says, and Esau at that time, after the death of Abraham, frequently went into the field to hunt. And Nimrod, king of Babel, the same was Amraphel, 
also frequently went with his mighty men to hunt in the field and to walk about with his men in the cool of the day. And Nimrod was observing Esau all the days, for a jealousy was formed in the heart of Nimrod against Esau all the days. And on a certain day, Esau went into the field to hunt, and he found Nimrod walking in the wilderness with his two men. And all his mighty men and his people were with him in the wilderness, but they removed at a distance from him, and they went from him in different directions to hunt. And Esau concealed himself for Nimrod, and he lurked for him in the wilderness. And Nimrod and two of his men that were with him came to the place where they were when Esau started suddenly from his lurking place and drew his sword and hastened and ran to Nimrod and cut off his head. So here we have, you know, this story kind of brings to life this conniving, designing, deceitful, murderous aspect of Esau's personality. And this hunting expedition was the backdrop to, you know, the familiar passage in Genesis 25 when Esau comes in from the field faint, weary, and famished. Well, it's because he killed Nimrod and two of his men, and he was on the run from the rest of Nimrod's men. And that's where he comes into the tent and finds Jacob making this red lentil stew. Now, an interesting side note about the red lentil stew is it's the traditional meal of comfort that the oldest son would make for the grieving father. So here in the storyline, we have Isaac. He's grieving the death of Abraham. And Esau should have been the one in the tent making the red lentil stew, but instead he's off in the fields killing others. And this was the backdrop of the transformation of Esau to Edom. Esau chose to be red by covering his hands with murderous blood instead of fulfilling that loving role of the firstborn son caring for the grieving father. And when you understand all this, it's, it makes more sense why God says, Jacob, I love and Esau I hate. Well, this was the genesis of the color red being the calling card for the Nephilim agenda. So what happened is in this transformation that Esau made to to become Edom, you know, that had substantial ramifications upon his bloodline. So Esau, he had a son named Iliaphaz, and Iliaphaz had a Horite concubine named Timnah. Timnah bore Iliaphaz a son, and they named him Amalek. Now, what's interesting about the Horites is they are listed in Genesis 14 among a list of tribes of giants, but it's not thought that they themselves were giants, but more that they intermingled, meaning they interbred with the giants. So they were spreading the Nephilim genes. So more than likely, Amalek had Nephilim genes within him. And then when you understand the meaning of his name, it means blood liquor as in someone who devours something and licks up the blood. So in following this trail of the Edomites, it became clear that the Edomites have these traits of the Nephilim within them, and they also are known to have red hair. And that's one of the traits that I've listed in um, my in chapter 13 as one of the four physical traits. But I want to make a caveat here because um, I don't want people to misunderstand. I am not saying that everyone with red hair has Nephilim genes or is a Nephilim host. (laughs) You know, my grandmother, she was an amazing woman of God and she was my spiritual mentor and she had red hair and I'm not suggesting she was a Nephilim host. But I can't deny the fact that as I scoured through historical documents, now I have 553 references in my book and so I did a ton of research 
And as I'm scouring through all these historical documents, it's unmistakable that there's this link between red hair and other Nephilim traits, you know, whether that was in the Edomites or the elongated skulls of Paracas, Peru, or the red-haired cannibals, you know, that terrorized the Paiute tribe in Nevada. There's the Tarim Basin mummies in China that were um, of giant size. And then the Celts, the Scythians, and the Khazarians, you know, it really became clear that there's this connection with red hair and other Nephilim traits. But it would be foolish to draw a conclusion based on one genetic marker alone, just like I couldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't diagnose someone with schizophrenia based on one symptom alone. You know, you need a cluster of symptoms or a cluster of traits. But this does lend further evidence that red is a calling card for the Nephilim agenda. And then further evidence came when I understood the meaning of the name Rothschild. It means red shield. And the Rothschilds are arguably some of the most influential Nephilim hosts in the common era. And then you fast forward to our current day, and you know we see a lot of connection between red and the Nephilim agenda. Think about Maria Abramovich's spirit cooking as an example. You know she's obsessed with using blood as her medium for artistic expression. And then red shoes being a symbol of pedophilia, which is one of the behavioral characteristics of Nephilim hosts. And then you think about the red light district. You know the red light district. It is sexual depravity and enslavement, also part of the Nephilim agenda. And then the term being in the red, meaning to be in debt. Again, that is part of this Nephilim agenda. But what was um, super interesting for me is that probably within the last month, month and a half, well, no, it's, it's only been a month, the Lord began kind of connecting more pieces for me in the sense that Surprisingly, there's a connection between red and the Nephilim agenda found in parasites. And the Bible actually begins to uncover these clues of the parasitic nature of Nephilim hosts. So that's a bit of the calling card for the Nephilim. That's incredible. I, I, uh, so uh, Abramovich, even down to the, the cakes that she makes uh, during these sessions, I believe is a red cake. Uh, I, I, I'm just recalling off the top of my head, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing that, like one of those, what is it called? A red velvet cake or something like that. Uh, I see them, mm -hmm. them yes. cutting into. Um, and so that's, uh, one of the calling cards of the Nephilim. Now, um, you mentioned about there's Nephilim hosts and then there's mm -hmm. Nephilim still today. Yes. Uh, yes. are, are we talking about the, the giant Nephilim or people with Nephilim DNA in them? Uh, and and I guess before before you go and answer that, um, the, as far as the Nephilim hosts go, do, do they know that they're being, that, that they're hosts of the, of the Nephilim? Or is this something more along the lines of like a, a, a demonic possession type gig? Great questions. And that comes up a lot because I think it's important to differentiate. So I'm glad you asked that question. So, um, first of all, Nephilim are hybrids. So they would be part divine or part spiritual being, part human. Um, and there are Nephilim alive today. And that goes into um, a whole nother discussion about satanic ritual abuse and what happens in those rituals. And women that are from the royal bloodline have birthed Nephilim. 
So the Nephilim that are birthed in our generation, well, since the Hitler Project of 1944, um, they are not giants. They're said to be incredibly intelligent, breathtakingly handsome. Most of them are men. Um, and they're incredibly strong, but they're not giants. The ones that at least appear on earth um, are not giants. But then you have Nephilim that live underground, um, for example, under Mount Hermon, under the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They're very active in Area 51, at New Schwanstein in Germany, also in Antarctica. And they're shapeshifters. And so Nephilim underground have more of their true shape. And um, I have a very dear friend that um, the Lord has just blessed me with friendship with her. She is from the royal bloodline and she was um, a product of the Hitler project. So she was birthed out of a conception ritual that involves so much darkness that there was this interplay with the spiritual forces of darkness in her very DNA. And so people that were born as a result of this conception ritual have a third strand in the DNA and they're able to birth hybrids and Nephilim. So she's one of them. She's from South Africa and um, it's not her real name, but she goes by L. And um, so she has experienced both birthing Nephilim, but also she had a Nephilim as her handler um, for parts of her life. And she experienced unspeakable torture. I mean, it's hard for her to even put words to it because really as humans, we can't comprehend the level of torture. And most of that, well, I don't know about most of it. Some of that was underground. And so she she saw this Nephilim in its true form. So if that helps to answer the question about the Nephilim, then Nephilim hosts are people who intentionally partner with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out the Nephilim agenda. Now, do they start off intentionally saying, yes, I want to propagate the Nephilim agenda? Probably not, no. But they start off on a path of iniquity, and the further and further they get, um, I believe they, you know, come into being a Nephilim host. And I can go over, um, you know, some of the behavioral characteristics to give you an idea of what Nephilim hosts are. But where I differentiate between someone who has demon oppression, because, you know, I was raised, um, I've been a Christian all my life. You know, I, I accepted Jesus at my grandmother's vacation Bible school when. I was like four or five years old and I've never walked away from Jesus. I've had my ups and downs, certainly. Um, But at age six, um, I went to my great grandmother's open casket funeral and a spirit of fear of death came into me at that point in time. And I didn't know it lay dormant until I went to graduate school in Los Angeles where there's all sorts of crime. And that triggered this fear of death in me. And so I've had demonic oppression within me, even though I've been a believer all my life. And thank the Lord, he set me on a path of freedom when I was at Fuller Theological Seminary. And that's a whole nother story. (laughs) But um, so the difference with demonic oppression is a person isn't intentionally trying to carry out that Nephilim agenda. So that's the difference between someone like me who had demonic oppression and a Nephilim host. But one of the things that I think is so fascinating, um, and again, something that the Lord has just been connecting the dots for me recently, is this parasitic nature of the Nephilim host. And 
I thought, you know, in order to describe this a little bit more, if I can just kind of briefly give a definition of what a parasite is, please, um, and then we can go down that rabbit hole a bit, um, if that's okay. So a parasite, there's two categories of parasites. So there's a biological parasite, and then there's a societal parasite or a social parasite. So a biological parasite essentially is this living organism that feeds off another larger living organism called a host. And the purpose for this parasite feeding off this host is so that it can gain nutrients and it can grow and it can multiply. And most often that's harmful to the host. So that's a biological parasite. A social parasite is someone who lives off of or is dependent upon or exploits another person with giving little or nothing in return. So this this idea of exploiting, that kind of goes back to what I said earlier about that figurative meaning of the Hebrew word for hunter, um, that, you know, it's someone who lies in wait to catch a human for the purpose of exploiting them. So that would be a social parasite. And then if we dig a little bit further and we look at um, the Greek word for parasite, it's parasitosis, and it means a person who eats at another's table. And then if we dig even further, it's not until we look at some of the Hebrew words for worm that would represent like a parasite where the pieces begin to come together. So one of the Hebrew words for worm is tola, and it means scarlet, worm, crimson, or maggot. Now, I think it's fascinating that the Hebrew word for worm also means crimson and scarlet. So here we have this red calling card, part of this Nephilim agenda. So I'm like, could this be part of the Nephilim agenda? And then when you dig a little bit further and you realize that the root word of this word for worm, the root word in Hebrew is yala. And it means to speak rashly, talk wildly, to blurt out inconsiderably and to devour. Now, I find that fascinating that that's the root word for worm because it more aptly describes Nephilim hosts rather than an actual worm. And so as I as I describe parasites and the influence parasites can have upon their host, and I talk about some of these behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim host, I think it will come together. So I want to just go over 12 of these behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim host. There's 19, but I'll just do 12 because I think these are the ones where you can begin to see the parasitic nature. So they are lustfulness in conjunction with sexual misconduct, pervasive pattern of instability in relationships marked by control, manipulation, intimidation, and domination over others, haughty and prideful as if above reproach, vengeful or inappropriate intense anger, Reoccurring violent acts displaying disregard for the rights of others. Lack of remorse for heinous acts against other living beings. Dishonesty in trade and business transactions, a propensity towards corruption. Sexual perversion involving pedophilia, sexual domination of others against their will, and or bestiality. Trafficker of humans. Engage in cannibalism. Commit human sacrifices and the enslavement of others. And so you can kind of see how these characteristics are, you know, consistent with social parasites, you know, someone who exploits others for their own personal gain. 
And certainly the Federal Reserve is parasitic in nature. You know, it feeds off of the debt of we the people. But if we go further down this rabbit hole a little bit more, what we see is, you know, remember one thing I mentioned earlier, at the core of the Nephilim agenda is the goal to strip us of our humanity. Essentially, what they want to do is they want to turn us into hybrids. They want to hijack our bodies, turn us into hybrids. But in order to do that, they first have to hijack our minds. Well, it turns out that parasites, biological parasites, are capable of mind control. And that's where this can impact us. It's like one, another way that the Nephilim agenda can impact us today. Okay, let's talk about our sponsor this week, which is HelloFresh. And friends, let me just skip to the good part. Let me tell you what they want me to tell you at the end of the commercial right here at the beginning. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Confessionals21 and use code Confessionals21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. Listen, they're practically feeding you for an entire month. Confessionals21, 21 free meals. They have never done this before. This is really freaking cool. I really like it a lot. Now, let me tell you about HelloFresh so you know what I'm talking about. HelloFresh is a meal kit company and they provide quality ingredients that you won't waste any. You're not going to have anything left over like you do when you go to the grocery store. You're going to have everything you need in the ingredients that it requires. And a lot of this stuff can be done very quickly. So if you're on the go and stuff, they have fast and fresh recipes that can get done in 15 minutes that are hard-hitting, robust flavors. I'm talking, listen, if you've never had HelloFresh, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you had HelloFresh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Their flavors are smack you right upside the face powerful. I absolutely love them. And they have over 35 weekly recipes to choose from. That's weekly recipes. And not to mention, hey, you heard about tailgating at the game and stuff. Well, you can home gate with HelloFresh and do it like a pro because they have limited time assortments of snacks, appetizers, and shareable sweets available right there on the HelloFresh marketplace. Listen, friends, go to HelloFresh.com. Here's the end part. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Confessionals21 and use code Confessionals21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. That's go to HelloFresh.com slash Confessionals21 and use code Confessionals21 for 21 free meals plus free shipping. 21 meals. Just just go get it. It's 21 free meals. Go. That's really interesting because uh, I always say this term to my wife, not on the show, you know, it's, but I, I we, we, her and my, me and my wife, you know, we talk about the state of the world today and, you know, how bizarre things are. And it just, you know, when something happens and we're just like, what the heck? We're just like, eh, it, it's, it, it's, it's normal for today. It, it, and, and I always, I always say this term to her, whenever somebody does something off the wall, bizarre, I'm just like, they got a mind virus. And and it, it's just like the idea that in, in my head, it was just like this idea that there's something infecting people's brains to make them do just incredibly like like wrong things, morally wrong, just things that don't make sense. And uh, you were talking about the pedophilia and that, 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 that aspect that's being pushed into our culture today. It's something that I talked about before I even had a podcast. I, 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 you're, I'm just a, a dumb truck driver driving a truck through Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I got my, my little old Facebook with my own personal friends, of, of people that I actually knew at the time. And the, 
I, I would I would start talking about this stuff on my Facebook and people are saying I'm crazy and I'm like literally showing because back then there were I, there were actually YouTube channels that were promoting pedophilia and um I and I I was taking these and I was posting them to people and they're like you're overreacting I'm like no I'm telling you right now five to ten years from now pedophilia is gonna be something that's gonna be totally pushed into our culture and society because and I used the the the, the mapping of our past since the 2000s, seeing how our culture has been progressing in a certain direction. And I'm saying, I'm telling you, and now I'm telling people it, within five years, possibly less, you're going to see little boys holding hands with full grown men if things don't change. And, uh, and so kind of that, that idea that mind virus affecting the culture and, um, and right along the lines with what you're talking about with this whole Nephilim agenda and stuff and, and the, the, the pedophilia that's uh, part of that. It's absolutely fascinating uh, do you, let me ask you this question, uh, and this is kind of off the wall, but I, I don't want to forget to ask you this because I just got a sense that you might have an answer for me that I actually want to hear. Um, <laughs> in, <laughs> uh, I have never talked about this on my show before, and there's a particular person that I'm try- I've been trying for years to get on my show, and, and she's talked to me very sparingly, but pretty much has ghosted me since, and I'm fine with it. I'm not mad or anything. Um, but do you know in your research or have come across the idea of the mothers of darkness? Yes. Could, do they yeah. do they have anything to do with this at all? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's another that's show. A very, that's a very um, deep rabbit hole that I certainly talk about. Um, and I've had interactions with people who have been trained as mothers of darkness. Um, and I do know from, you know, my, my close relationship with Elle, who's from the Royal bloodline. So essentially Elle, as I mentioned, she was birthed as a result of this Hitler project. And so from the moment of birth, she was birthed into the Luciferian occult and ritually abused from the moment of birth. And she was um, taken to Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, and she was raped by a Nephilim at her birth. And that just began the torture. And so um, mothers of darkness are very much real and they are um, part of the Illuminati. They're, you know, hierarchy within the Illuminati and very much involved in this Nephilim agenda, involved with Nephilim and um you know, it's something not many people understand, and uh, that's one of the one of the things that the Lord has led me down. Like, <laughs> you know, when you say yes to the Lord, you have no idea where He's going to take you. And thankfully, He doesn't show us the big picture because I'm sure I would have said no, absolutely, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> but I just step by step, just keep saying yes, Lord, yes, Lord, because He's so faithful. He has stretched me way <laughs> beyond my comfort zone. But each time he stretches me, he's right there to provide everything that I need. Now, I never could have anticipated having relationships with people coming out of satanic ritual abuse. But that's where I'm at. That's where God has given me these these relationships with these people. And then not only that, thankfully, I have connections with people that minister to people coming out of satanic ritual abuse. And the Lord is just knitting this all together for me. And so anyways, um, without going much further down that trail, um, yes, the mothers of darkness are very real. 
Interesting. Uh, maybe one day I'll have you on. We'll focus on that topic and stuff. I, uh, yes, we could. I, I've talked about it before uh, in the past, just from my own understandings, and I've looked into it myself. Uh, I actually pl- I, I've never told anybody this before, but I was actually planning uh, a trip uh, to Germany involving the Mothers of Darkness, and I was talked out of it. They're like, you don't want to do that, man. And I was like, no, it's great. It's me fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to listen to the counsel of others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it was just one of those things where like, I wasn't thinking in my right mind. I was, I was just going down the rabbit trail and I was just like, well, um, it, it was like a month or two into do, it, going full-time podcast. I was like, well, it's my job. I got to do this. <laughs> and uh, my wife wasn't, my wife wasn't uh, having much of a, um, success talking to me about it. So, uh, my one friend that has a wife, his wife, uh, is from Germany and stuff. And I was talking to him about it. And the deeper I got with him, he, he talks sense into me. So, uh, let's, uh, let's get back on track though. Cause I definitely want to talk to you about that at some point, uh, down the road. Um, now yeah. the, the parasitic nature of the Nephilim host is, is what you described, what you were describing to me, uh, it really, I mean, DC, a lot of the politicians in DC, uh, are either visibly fitting the characteristics that you were laying out, or uh, there's a lot of assumptions about certain people uh, in DC that fit those characteristics. And we are seeing the push of the normalization of uh, pedophilia in our culture and society. And uh, unfortunately, um, we have this whole story of Jeffrey Epstein that just keeps getting buried more and more. In fact, just recently, uh, there was a, a, a broadcast. I forget what one of these major news outlets, but probably not. It was probably Fox. If it was a major new, a news outlet, it had to be Fox because it wasn't going to be anybody else. Uh, but it, it was. It was Jesse Waters on Fox. He was talking about this and how... Um, they they keep suppressing this this Epstein story, and the fact is, in these court documents, there there are there's evidence that uh, he blackmailed p- powerful people, and uh, and the only person that is being called on the carpet is the one that's in jail right now, Glenn Maxwell, and there's so many of these other people ro- roaming free. The only thing that I can imagine is because at the highest levels there is guilt. And they will cover each other's tracks. And what you're saying is this is all related to this Nephilim agenda. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier about a virus of the mind. Is that how you put it? Or a mind Mind virus? virus, Yeah. I think you are way more accurate than you probably even understood. So I want to talk a little bit about that because this is a way that the Nephilim agenda impacts us here and now. And so, you know, thanks to this, there's this growing field called neuroparasitology, which essentially examines the impact that parasites have on our central nervous system. And so we now know that parasites can alter the behavior of their host to the point where they literally can hijack the host decision-making process. So parasites, these biological parasites are masters of chemical and biological warfare. What they do is they specialize in mind control and molecular mimicry. And so you have these parasites that can actually influence a person on the level of their DNA all the way up to the level of social interaction. And so what happens is these parasites actually can disrupt the host's perception of reality and then move in to control behavior. So I want to give some examples to this, because this is what you were touching on with a mind virus. 
So there's um, a particular parasite called Toxoplasma gondii, and I'll just call it T. gondii for short. And essentially, it's found in cat feces and also in undercooked meat. And so 30, it's estimated about 30% of the world's population is infected with T. gondii. And here in the United States, probably between 10 to 20% of the population is infected with T. gondii. Now, it's a parasite that can lay dormant inside of us, but it, when it gets activated, and we don't know how it gets activated necessarily, but it prefers uh, to feed on lymph nodes, brain, heart, and lungs. And what it does is it actually manipulates behavior through using an epigenetic process that alters the genes of the amygdala. And this is where it becomes just absolutely fascinating. So what happens is stimuli that normally would trigger fear in a person actually triggers sexual arousal instead. And so you have this fatal attraction phenomenon. So hosts of this T. Gandhi are less risk aversive. So I'll give you some examples because we see this in insects, in animals, and also in humans. So in mice, for example, mice normally are, you know, afraid of cats and the smell of cat urine would trigger a fear response and they'd run the other direction. But mice infected with T. gondii are actually sexually aroused by the smell of cat urine and go towards the cat, not having that normal fear response. And of course, then they're killed because the cat gets them. Well, in humans, um, what happens is risky situations that would normally trigger fear in an infected human, um, it, it's perceived as kind of a benign situation. So for example, if you're in the middle of gunfire, you have no fear response to that or walking across a busy street with oncoming traffic. There isn't the normal fear response. And then what they found, um, you know, research has found that infected people will actually have an increased attraction to harmful sexual deviant practices. Give you some examples. This is where it begins to tie back into Nephilim hosts. So women infected with T. Gandhi are more likely, there's a higher frequency of engaging in bestiality as compared to non-infected women. And again, that's one of the behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim host. Men that are infected with T. Gandhi are more likely to engage in sexual practices that include bondage, rape, and other forms of violence. Again, these are characteristics of the Nephilim hosts. Another fascinating thing about T. Gandhi is there's actually a correlation with some neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. And then also with mental illness, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And what we're finding is that, you know, people infected with T. Gandhi actually have higher suicide rates as well. And so, you know, if I were still practicing, seeing clients, you know, doing therapy, I would actually have all of my clients do a parasite cleanse because I would want to know, okay, are there parasites that are driving this mental illness? Let's get rid of those parasites and see what gets cleared up, and then we can work with what's left. Um, so I find that incredibly fascinating. And then there's some research um, by a guy named Kevin Lafferty out of um, University of California, Santa Barbara, and he looked at um, the population. So T. Gandhi and a population, the impact that has on culture. 
And what he found is that populations with a higher prevalence of T. Gandhi actually have um, higher levels of neuroticism. So what neuroticism is, is essentially it's a personality trait disposition to where a person experiences kind of these negative affects. So like anger, anxiety, self-consciousness, irritability, depression, you know, this overall emotional instability. And then he found that, you know, these populations with higher prevalence of T. Gandhi are more likely to establish authoritarian governments, which I find super fascinating. So that's just some examples with one parasite alone, T. Gandhi. Now, some other um, very fascinating research done back in the 1980s was looking at the connection between parasites and homosexual behavior. And there was two research studies that essentially, they were independent studies done like three years apart, but they found almost the same results. And that was that there's a 400% increase of prevalence rate of intestinal parasites in homosexual men when compared to heterosexual men. That is a huge difference. And then they found, um, well, not they, since, you know, reading those articles, I've also read some anecdotal reports um, from homosexual men saying that their craving for anal sex stopped after they did a parasite cleanse. Now, I think that is fascinating and certainly more research is needed in this area because, you know, we need to understand the extent to which, just like with other mental illness, like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, the extent to which these parasites are driving this homosexual behavior. But of course, in our climate these days, research like that, first of all, wouldn't get funded. And even if it did, it would get censored. And I think that's why you can't, like I couldn't find any research more recent than 35 years ago in the connection between parasites and homosexuality. Now, another really interesting thing is there's some research done, this was more recently in 2014, looking at the connection between parasites and cannibalism. And so researchers found um, that in freshwater shrimp that had this common parasite, um, that they had increased rates of cannibalism versus those non-infected shrimp. And so if these shrimp had this parasite, they essentially became more efficient foragers of these young shrimp. So what my brain does is I think, okay, well, is there a connection with parasites and cannibalism in humans? Kind of similar to what we see in T. Gandhi, you know, this similar responses in insects, animals, and humans when T. Gandhi is the parasite that a person is infected with. So again, I think more research is needed in this area to look at the connection between cannibalism and these parasites. And, you know, if you remember, cannibalism is one of those behavioral characteristics I mentioned of the Nephilim hosts. So now in thinking and understanding that these parasites have this capability of controlling the mind of the host, I want to kind of draw our awareness to the fact that Nephilim hosts are actually weaponizing parasites against us, and that's a form of bio-warfare. Now, I have this um, incredibly brilliant friend. His name is Mitchell Florn, and he's a scientist. He's a 
a biopharmaceutical microbiologist, and he actually was a whistleblower against uh, Big Pharma. And he lost nearly everything because he did that, because he had um, the strength of courage to stand up against Big Pharma. So his role was to test drugs prior to market to make sure that before the FDA put their stamp of, of approval on it, that it was safe for the general public. And one of the drugs he was testing was killing people. And so he was not willing to approve it. And he got threatened and um, he stood his ground and was a whistleblower. So anyways, he's, um, he's kind of helped me put some of the pieces together on this aspect of how Nephilim hosts are, or how parasites essentially can be weaponized. And what he explains, first of all, is it's really important to understand that all pathogens are parasitic in nature, but not all parasites are pathogens. Okay. So he talks about um, the fact that parasites, you know, they need a living host. So technically viruses are parasitic in nature. And I'll, I'll just read you a quote from him. He says, viruses are small obligate intercellular parasites which by definition contains either an RNA or a DNA genome surrounded by a protective virus-coated protein coat. So what does that mean? It means that viruses can be considered parasitic in nature. They're essentially, you know, um, intercellular parasites. So now we begin looking at history and how, how have Nephilim hosts weaponized bacteria, viruses, parasites against us? When we consider Lyme disease, Lyme disease is a bioweapon. And what Mitchell says about Lyme disease is it's an obligately parasitic, tick-transmitted, invasive, persistent bacterial pathogen that causes disease in humans and non-reservoir vertebrates, primarily through the induction of inflammation. So what happened is back in the 1950s, ticks were weaponized. And they were weaponized by Nazi scientists through prop or Operation Paperclip in conjunction with Fort Detrick. So Fort Detrick had this offshore germ warfare animal disease lab on Plum Island. Plum Island was where they were doing the lion's share of the, these experiments where they were weaponizing ticks with bacteria. So then in 1975, you have this outbreak of a strange disease in old Lyme, Connecticut. And that's where Lyme disease gets its name because the first outbreak was in old Lyme. Now, Lyme disease is carried by ticks with this bacteria called Borrelia burgdeferi. And essentially what happens is it attacks the central nervous system and it causes you know, debilitating symptoms and then could cause death as well. So that's one example of how they are weaponizing these parasites. Another example more recently is in the COVID-19 injection. So Dr. Robert Young, he found the trip, trypanosoma parasite in the Pfizer jab. And this particular parasite can be lethal because what it does is it causes inflammation in the heart muscle and also in the neural membranes. And, you know, a strain of this parasite in Africa causes a fatal disease called sleeping sickness. 
And then another strain of it in the Americas, so North America and South America, causes a fatal disease called Chagas disease. And, you know, both of them uh, trigger this inflammation. And, you know, it's interesting too, as I was doing a bunch of reading on this, um, in AIDS patients, there's a high prevalence of trypanosoma parasite in AIDS patients. So why the heck is Pfizer including this parasite in the injection? And I think, you know, it really speaks to this agenda, again, the Nephilim agenda of defiling our human genome and also this depopulation agenda. Now, one last thing I'll mention as far as some of this research is um, very recent. So December of last year, scientists unveiled this advancement in biotechnology and it's the first ever self-replicating robot called a xenobot. And these robots originated from the stem cells within a frog leg. And what they've shown is that these robots are able to gather neighboring cells and replicate themselves. And so what Mitchell was, um, you know, trying to help me understand is these xenobots could be made into parasites, viruses, or bacteria because they're considered non-differentiated. So what that means is that scientists can create a synthetic organism that self-replicates incessantly. Now, what could go wrong with that, right? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nothing to see here. Well, it's interesting because um, one of the founders of nanotechnology, his name is Eric Drexler, and he wrote a book called Engines of Creation. And he talks about the, what potentially could go wrong with something like this. And he says it's gray goo. And he says he, he kind of envisioned nanobots that replicated incessantly, and then they devoured their surroundings. So turning everything in their wake into this sludge, this, this gray goo is what he called it. Now, I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but, you know, these things are concerning for sure. But, you know, one of the things that I always want to do when I share some of these dark um, research and this dark material is make sure that we are left with encouragement and, and hope. Because, you know, no matter what Nephilim hosts try to throw at us, Jesus already has the solution. And he is our living hope. And I absolutely love that because what it means is we are never without hope. Hope never dies. If we know Jesus, we have hope. And I don't share all these things about parasites and the Nephilim agenda and self-replicating robots to stir up fear in people, but rather to help us understand the spiritual battle we're in the midst in. So I want to equip people to know how to fight it. You know, Hosea 4, 6, it says, for my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So once we have this knowledge, we then have to remember to walk in 2 Timothy 1, 7, which says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I think, you know, one of the, a practical step that we can take to combat these parasitic mind control organisms is consider doing a parasite cleanse. And there's all sorts of ways to do that. Um, you know, for those people that have traveled outside of the United States, um, for those people that have cats, for those people who really enjoy sushi, you know, you may have a parasite or two inside of you. And so it's good 
you know, as a regular um, practice to cleanse those parasites from you. And there's all sorts of ways to do that. You know, people can do their research on the internet. I will share, you know, just two examples um, to give people some practical ways to go after it. And, you know, there's some herbal tinctures uh, that you can use. One of them is by a company named Zoller, and I don't get any any kickback from any of these. <laughs> Um, and it's Z-A-H-L-E-R is the name of the company. And the product is called Paragard. And essentially, it's an herbal tincture that does a parasite cleanse. And then also, um, the company Now, N-O-W, they have a parasite cleanse called Green Black Walnut Wormwood Complex. And you can buy those off the internet. You can buy those at your Whole Food grocers, you know, whatever, um, wherever you go for that type of stuff. But the point I want to make is, you know, let's be proactive. We want, we don't want to give these mind altering organisms free range in our bodies, right? We want to cleanse our bodies. So what our thoughts are able to line up with the thoughts of the Lord. In fact, you know, when you think about it, we are triune beings, right? So we're body, soul, and spirit. And cl- doing a parasite cleanse is combating this mind control on the level of the body. But how do we do that for our soul and spirit? And a passage I often go to is Romans 12, 2. And it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Well, you know, I was like, okay, Lord, what does it really mean to renew your mind? Like, what, how do we do that? And I just looked up the Hebrew or the Greek word because it's written in the New Testament, the Greek word for renew, and it's anakinosis. And it means renewal, renovation, a complete change for the better. And it comes from the root word anakino, which means to cause to grow up, to make new, to be changed into a new kind of life as opposed to the former corrupt state. And to me, that sounds so promising. And so what we can do is we literally can renew our mind day by day. You know, one of the things that I do is every day I pray through and put on my spiritual armor. I put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, sandals of peace, shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit. But then I also pray and I say, Lord, bind my mind to the mind of Christ because I want my thoughts to align with his thoughts. And when we do that, we recognize that the, the name, the power that's in the name of Jesus is more powerful than whatever any parasite can do to us because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. And I think about, you know, Romans 8. It encourages us that we're more than conquerors. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And so I just want to encourage us all with that, that it's important to understand these things. It gives us a big picture of what's going on in the world, but we don't have to walk in fear because the Lord has equipped us already with everything that we need to fight the battle that we're in. Absolutely. I, you know, and I get a question that's thrown at me a lot over the years uh, doing this show, dealing with, you know, we talk to people about their experiences with the unknown, the paranormal, and people, you know, they'll say, aren't you afraid of, and I just, it's just like, stop right there. I'm not afraid. And it's, it's because I know the reason why I'm here. And I always just say the phrase, God's got me. And that's just the way I, I operate in my life. I don't fear 
at all anything, which is why I was stupid enough to think I was going to go to to uh, Germany and and hunt the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the mothers of darkness down and ask them a few questions. <laughs> but uh, you know, maybe one day I'll still get a chance to do it. It sounds fun. But uh, I, I'll tell you, I I really appreciate you coming on and sharing these things. I think you gave people a lot to chew on. I'm really glad you uh, offered the uh, the um, the places that people can look to maybe do uh, the cleanse. Uh, you mentioned in your practice that you've done, that was like the first step that you do this to, and then see what's left over that you have to deal with. Ha, have you seen a, a, a large amount of people that the, the cleanse, it kind of takes care of the issues for them? Actually, what I said is if I was practicing now, oh. I would do that because I wasn't aware of the impact of parasites. Um, when I was practicing, I retired in 2013 and, um, but if I was still practicing today, that would be part of my treatment plan for folks is let's do a parasite cleanse and get that out of your system and see what sort of mental health issues you have after those parasites are gone. Because there is, I mean, there's a ton of research linking um, parasites with schizophrenia, with depression, you know, bipolar disorder, and even, you know, with higher rates of suicide, like I mentioned. And so, Psychologists and psychiatrists don't think to go after parasites as part of the treatment plan, but I think we should for sure consider mm. that. Wow. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, I'm going to definitely try it myself and maybe I'll be a completely different host next time people hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, along the schizophrenic line, this is another uh, maybe off the wall type question, but do you personally feel like some people, because I, I, I do, but this is just from somebody who doesn't know any difference. Uh, do you personally feel like maybe there are people that misdiagnosed and they're not dealing with more, it's more, it's less schizophrenic and more demonic p- uh, possession, oppression in their life? Yes. In fact, that is the whole reason why I went to Fuller Theological Seminary for my graduate degree. I was, when I was working at the VA Medical Center in La Jolla, um, doing the research that I was talking about, I would do clinical interviews on the locked inpatient wards. So I was working with people who are danger to self or danger to others, and primarily with people that had been diagnosed as schizophrenia. And I will never forget this one interview. And I was asking this gentleman, you know, what do the voices tell you? Because that was part of the, you know, the clinical um, interview. And he said, my voices tell me that Satan is God and to kill my neighbor. And I was like, okay, that's pretty clear to me. And this was before I even understood much of the spiritual realm. And so I went to Fuller Theological Seminary. In fact, the first week, uh, you know, they do orientation and they sit all the graduate students down with um, the, you know, the chief of psychology that, and, and some of the other professors. And they ask us, what do you hope to get out of your graduate school experience? And I said, I want to be able to differentiate when people with schizophrenia are hearing voices that are demonic versus voices that are true to schizophrenia. And they looked at me and they said, well, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, just this past week um, in doing this research on parasites, there is a psychologist who, um, I don't have his name in front of me, but he's written a book and he's worked in state hospitals and prisons um, and has worked with chronic mentally ill longer than I have. And he really is understanding kind of the parasitic nature of schizophrenia, the voices that they hear. It's like this, um, he, he likens it more to an energy drain 
And um, so it's it's fascinating to think about it along those lines. But I do think that that many people are misdiagnosed because they are either hearing parasites inside of them or demonic oppression as well. Um, and so it's again, it's one of the reasons why I went to Fuller because I wanted to help people with schizophrenia have a voice because they are just marginalized in society people don't know what to do with them and and that breaks my heart you know i i just have such a big heart for people that struggle with schizophrenia that's incredible i mean some people's issues might not be as much mental as spiritual issues that uh need to be taken care of um that you know this this whole conversation uh, when you're talking about the the parasites and stuff it just it it sounds it sounds like the making of a dystopian movie, you know, and it, 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 it really does. I, I mean, zombie apocalypse movie, right? <laughs> really, I mean, it, it's 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 uh, and 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 that's another thing is with Hollywood and stuff. It, it I often feel like they show us reality through fictional movies, and uh, one of the big pushes in the last 10, 15 years is the whole mind virus type, you know, zombie something taking over, dead people walking. Uh, there might be more truth than fiction involved in that, and uh, it, it's it's fascinating. I, there's there's even something in the uh, the news recently about something to do with zombies, and you know it's just every once in a while zombies pop up, and I'm just like, oh, here we go, you know. So, uh, Dr. Laura Sanger, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, everybody should definitely check out your work if you can. Just let them know where to find it again. Yeah, absolutely. The best place probably is just to reach me on my website, which is no longer enslaved.com. And there I have my book um, is for sale on my website. It's also available on Amazon. It's called The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from the Days of Noah to U.S. Dollar. And then I also have um, a YouTube channel and a Rumble channel called No Longer Enslaved. And so for people that want to dive deeper into the impact of the Nephilim agenda today, I have a 10-part series And then also I have a seven-part series on spiritual mapping if people want to understand that more. I'm also on Instagram and Telegram under Laura Sanger 444 Hertz as an HZ. Well, I'll tell you what, all that stuff is going to be in the description of this episode. So people can definitely just uh, glance down, click the links and uh, find everything you're looking for right there. Uh, Dr. Laura Sanger, I really appreciate being here. This was a lot of fun and uh, very enlightening. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to see you at BlurryCon. Yeah, let's go. February 25th. (laughs) If, if you already know, it's because you got tickets. And if you don't know, it's too late. The tickets are sold out. So <laughs> I'll see you next time, Dr. Laura. Okay, take care. Well, that's the show, but I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please share the show with your friends. I don't care where or how you share the show. Just share the show if you enjoyed it, because that's the best thing you can do to help the show grow. Share the show. Thanks for being here, friends. Thanks for listening on a weekly basis. And until next week, stay safe, take care. And remember, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. Bye.
Sarah 